When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. You're about to hear a preview of Partially Examined Life supporter-exclusive content. To learn how to get the whole thing, check out partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Hey, this is the Partially Examined Life, episode 320, part three, pared down to me and Wes here. We're actually going to talk in two days about the brother, August Wilhelm Schlegel. So having that insight from that much clearer writer is, uh, I think, pretty good to uh, spend a little more time with Friedrich Schlegel. Did you share Seth's feeling that the fragments were actually the most entertaining part of this? No. Nietzsche does this very well with fragments, really, but little aphorisms. Sure, it's the same thing. But I think it's hard to pull off. There's some good stuff in here, but in general, I prefer expository writing. It's against the romantic spirit to do expository writing. All right, well, let's look at the first fragment. They provide a very concise collection of fragments. And of those, I have picked out in my notes an even smaller subset. So it's not like we're reading all of them here. But I did have a note on number one. Many are called artists who actually nature's works of art. We're playing Jeopardy now. (laughs) I'll take fragment one for 200. (laughs) Am I supposed to say what that means? I was reminded of Shaftesbury here. And this is going to be something that is, I think, important in getting into our August Schlegel, where he's talking about the romantic view of art and how it's different than Kant's. It's playing off Kant's, but it's different than Kant's. It's not different in the same way that Schiller's is different. It seems actually a little more thought out, as August puts it. But in here, we at least have a pointer. If you remember, Shaftesbury said, you know, what we're admiring art is purposiveness, and it is the purpose of the artist, and ultimately the purpose of God, right? The artist might not Mm -hmm. know what they're doing. The artist might be sort of a divine channel for the things that Mm -hmm. they can't understand. So it's actually the artist. You're admiring the artist. That's an open to the romantic view of like the artist as genius and the artist as expressive as opposed to anybody, even a computer, that could create things according to some sort of formal rules of symmetry. I think there are two paths to go down here. One is the relationship between the aesthetic and the moral, right? So if you're a Nietzschean virtue ethicist, then your style, your aesthetic presentation as part of your character becomes relevant, not just Aristotelian virtues. So that's one strand. But the strand you're going down, I think, is richer and you know, the path that you're proposing, which is not unrelated to what we saw in Schelling, for instance, where we are no longer trying to derive consciousness from matter as according to the naturalistic framework. We say that conscious beings are part of nature, that nature produces consciousness, and we shouldn't just think of it, sorry, nature produces still sounds like the naturalistic thing, that consciousness maybe is basic to our ontology, and then you, you, know, you get that writ large in Hegel with the truth, not just a substance, but as subject. But subjectivity, in other words, is a work of nature. It's natural, and if we think of it as simply opposed to the natural, then we get into all these mind-body 
problems. Finally, when it comes to the the aesthetic, this is something I think we've gotten at in several episodes, but when you enjoy the aesthetic in a work of art, you are enjoying something about the psyche of the creator. In other words, to enjoy beauty in a thing is more than, so for instance, enjoying the formal or disinterest or something like that. It's about being plugged into it's almost as if the enjoyment of beauty in the work of art recapitulates the creative process at some level. You identify with the creative process that led to that work of art. So let's read. Uh, so, relatedly, number 21, uh, which is still on the same page. That's how much they're cutting these down here. Just as a child is actually a thing that wants to become a person, so too is a poem nothing more than a thing of nature that wants to become a work of art. What do you make of that? So, what is he saying about the child? There's a teleology to this, right? To development. I've been writing about trying to think about social construction of gender again after all. We did that quite a while ago, and there's this paper where someone is talking about teleofunctions in biology, which I thought was a really interesting way to put it. But in any case, right, evolution has designed us with a tendency towards development, towards some state of you know what we consider to be maturation, or maybe in this case, abstract philosophical level personhood. So now he wants us to think of Hegel, German idealists want us to think of things in terms of the organic and the development. So how do we think of a poem as something that's developing towards some telos or some end? Well, no, the poem is the result, right? It's the thing of nature that wants to become a work of art. It's a very weird thing to say because it's like an utterance that wants to become a poem. Like that would seem more natural is like a person is trying to express themselves or they're even randomly saying some words and somehow how does that become a poem? Like that I understand, but... A poem is a thing of nature. In other words, that sounds like, again, that it's nature talking through you. It's not that you sit down and you construct something according to some rules, but it is a natural kind that grows just like a hen lays an egg. An artist <laughs> lays a poem. Yeah. We get rid of this strict division between nature and techne, nature and art, right? So even in the production, like I say, of artifacts early human beings, we can look at this as a radical departure from the natural, right? Culture as, it's again, something I've been thinking about, but culture as something radically divided against the natural rather than a product of the natural and something that nature speaks through. So if you say, well, what makes a good poem? Of course, he's not just talking about literal poetry, but any product of creativity. But if we do think about poetry, what makes a, a good poem? It's not some rules of assembly of significations that is set against nature. In a way, it's determined by nature. So nature speaks through it. Did we talk about nine? Wit is unconditionally sociable spirit or fragmentary geniality? Uh, no, I don't know that we... Wit is another semi-technical term that's related to irony. Unconditionally sociable spirit. Fragmentary geniality. What did you think was profound about that? I mean, I think he's thinking about wit in terms of like something we see between Shakespeare characters, right? People being clever with language, which is that there's something poetic about. Double entendres, you know, sometimes people using it to insult each other. Beatrice and Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing, where it's part of a courting ritual. There's the element of a jokingness in it. So it becomes a way of expressing aggression in a socially acceptable way, a form of sublimation. So when I see that, so I don't know if that's what he means by wit. When I think of that and the role that wit plays in the sense that I just defined it, plays in social life, I think it is actually very important. 
It's an important way of channeling aggression. It's a way of playing with words. I think there's something there about the way the poetic in common everyday life supports sociability, supports social interaction. If people are ribbing each other at a bar, in a way they're being poetic, and the aesthetic is somehow making social relations possible. And it's fragmentary, of course, because it's just little bits and pieces here and there in the interaction, and it's not a big hole or something like that. I want to interpret this as the most raunchy of stand-up comics would want to interpret it. <laughs> that wit is fundamentally a sociable, it is a, I don't want to say always lightening, because it could make you think really hard about things, but it is something that is in good faith. And so to be offended by a joke, to be offended by, right, this mm -hmm. Schlegel is known as a guy who published this book that was deemed scandalous because it talked about sex and having an affair and that if you're offended by something, then you're taking it wrong. It is your fault. So he would be a free speech guy looking at August Schlegel thinking that the even though he had high standards for quality, they can't be the standards given by your current society, right? That that is something that society has become corrupt and backwards in all sorts of ways. In fact, wit is one of the things that would enable you to unravel that. So, and especially if you're using irony, right? So you could say the most horrible things. Exactly. Yeah. Irony, I think, is an important part of it. Mm -hmm. Because you put yourself in a play frame where not everything you're saying is meant at that level, and you kind of hover above it agnostically, or you're showing people a, something like a play. So, for instance, when Ricky Gervais, this is not the worst kind of thing he says, but when he gets on stage and talks about how rich he is and how much better he is than his audience <laughs> because he's so rich and successful. Of course, that is in part a send-up of himself and his own narcissism, but the narcissism of people in general. So everyone is the butt of that, but he's also playing a persona, right? He's playing up that aspect of his character and human character in general, and he's not quite himself. And so when we move into that realm of being witty with each other, in a way, I don't think we're simply being ourselves. We're not being the serious man, right? The Beauvoir. We're not as wedded to one particular political opinion or another. We might play around with that. We might pretend that political opinions in general don't matter. What matters in wit is metaphor and the use of metaphor to create these different isomorphisms and connections between things, which seems to be its own sort of truth. So there's ironic truth, and then there's the truth of the seriousness and literal truth and all that stuff. So anyway, there's a lot more to be said about that, which I hope, I think we will say more in some upcoming episodes, right? Hopefully. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support. Thanks for listening. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.